Why don't you turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and Galatians chapter 5. And that may be click. We used to turn, nowadays we click. So maybe you have a device and you're clicking with us to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And, and I'm going be- to continue a series I started a couple weeks ago called Freeing Me. Freeing Me. Now, now what, is, what does that mean? And that seems a little bit it's like if you're here today, you're like, I'm not... I'm not in prison, you know. <laughs> How do I free myself? And, um, and, and, and the reason we talk about this is because Jesus uh, came to, to set us free. He said, if the sun sets you free, you can be free indeed. Well, what does that mean? Because he wasn't talking to prisoners. He wasn't doing prison ministry when he said free indeed. And here's what we say, that freedom is not about... Get, listen, did you know you can, you can be inside prison bars and be free, and you can be outside of a prison and be bound. And so what he's saying is, I want you to be able to live the life God destined you for, God created you for. And so freedom really isn't about stopping bad stuff. That's really not, like people say, well, I'm, I'm going to get, I need to get free from depression. And, and yeah, I think Jesus paid to heal us, to heal us emotionally, to heal, heal our souls, and he can free us from depression. I believe that. I've seen that. I've experienced that. I battle with depression. And most of you know my story last year, man, I went through six months of just hell. I don't know another way to describe it. I've never been depressed. And, and, and through a process, God brought me out of that. And it was just, it was like, man, God, you're so good. Like, thank God, you know, for your grace. And, and so it's, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about, you know, not doing stuff or not having, and, and you know, you, you cannot get free focusing on what binds you. Like, you know, if you've, if you've got an addiction to whatever, you're not going to get free focusing on the addiction. Because the Bible says, Jesus said this way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Whatever, whatever, whatever is first in my life has the power to order the rest of my life. And Jesus said, you got to let God's power and dominion and authority and rule order your life. And so if I'm focused on not being depressed, that won't work. I'll just be more depressed. What I have to do, can I help you with this? Most of the time, if you've got an addiction, depression, uh, fear, anxiety, all those, can I tell you something? Let me help you. Those aren't the problem. Those are the symptoms. Right? And, and, and we, we can, you know, you can get medicine for problems, but, but Jesus wants to free you. He wants to heal the symptoms. I mean, he doesn't want to heal the symptoms. He wants to heal the problem. And so freedom is not about stopping to do stuff or getting bad stuff out. Freedom is about letting God order my life in a way that I can be the person that God created me, me to be. Because I know what it's like to be a Christian, to be in bondage, and know God's created me for this purpose, this destiny. He wants me. He has all this stuff for me, and I'm stuck. And I know what that's like. And so because of that, I do a series like this called Freeing Me. And so I want to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 2 because Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he's addressing these type of issues and he's really getting down to some of the root cause of it and he really starts talking about our thinking. And so we'll just read this together. It's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. It says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And I'll explain this in just a minute. So if it doesn't make sense to you, don't worry. I'm going to come back to all these verses. But it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, uh, for they are folly to him, or you could say foolishness. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Then verse 15, The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. In other words, he's spiritual. He's under grace. He's, he's been made alive by the Spirit of God. Verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. That's such a key. And then chapter 3, now you understand when Paul was writing uh, this letter to the Corinthian church, he didn't write chapter and verse. That was something that, that we put in later, or people put in, so we could find different parts of the writings. In other words, you wouldn't write an email and say, Dear Pastor Marty, chapter 1. You know, it's like... And, and if your email is that long, please don't send it. And uh, because <laughs> I can't read all that, man. So anyways, uh, reading was not my strong suit in school. So if you got 12 chapters to your email, then 
come by and just tell me about it. Okay, I'm going to listen better than I can read. So anyways, um, but chapter one, you know, you don't do that. So, so he's still in the same thought is what I'm saying. The context has not changed, even though we've changed chapters in, in the Bible. So he says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Some versions say as carnal, carnal people. Uh, some versions say worldly people. Um, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, but you were not ready for it. And even now you're still not ready for it for you are still of the flesh. Now, some versions worldly or carnal for a while there is jealousy and strife among you. In other words, he's saying, look, here's some fruit of your carnality. There's, I'm talking to church people, but there's jealousy and strife. Sounds like some denominations I've been part of. Anyways, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, jealousy and strife among you. Uh, and he said, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human or worldly or carnal way? So Paul's talking to a church and he's like, you're a church, you're, you're believers, but I'm seeing a lot of worldly or carnal activity or carnal thinking and so I called this message Christian con carne. <laughs> and so, yeah, <laughs> Christian con carne. Because you know what chili con carne is, right? Chili con carne, there's chili and there's chili con carne. Chili con carne is chili with meat in it, right? And what Paul's saying is like, hey, you're a Christian church, but you got some flesh in you. You got some carnal stuff going on in you. Like you're Christians, but you're Christian con carne. You know what I'm saying? And so Paul's talking to the church. He's like, you're a Christian concarnate. And, and here's what he tells them. The first thing that he tells them that we just read here, the first thing is, he says there are three kinds of people. Like there, there are three kinds of people. Now I read it. Now let me break that down, what I just read. But if you go back, the first kind of person that he talks about is the unspiritual person, unspiritual person. And verse 14, he says, the natural person. That word uh, in the Greek literally means that your spirit is dead or dormant. In other words, this is an unbeliever. This is a person that has not accepted Christ because the Bible says, when I accept Christ by faith, I'm buried with him and resurrected and I'm made alive, that Christ is now living in me, right? And so this, this natural person uh, uh, is a person whose spirit is dead or dormant. And that's why Jesus says they need, you need to be born again. You need to be born of the spirit. You need to be rebirthed or made alive spiritually. And he says the natural person can't understand spiritual things. That they look foolish to him. And, and he can't understand them because they don't have the thing that helps you understand them. Right? You gotta, to understand spiritual things, you, gotta, you have to be alive spiritually. Right? That's why if you think about it, church looks really foolish to people who aren't alive spiritually. Like, why y'all get up early on Sunday morning? And why do you go? Why do you sing music and put your hands in the air and clap? And why, why, do you, why are you on a dream team? Why would you go serve one service and then attend another service, like in one service to another, you know, why do you give money to the church? Why, why do you do, you know, why do you show up and celebrate people going in a tub of water and coming out? <laughs> They're saying, Hey, and, and Paul even said, he even called what I do preaching. He said, it's foolishness that God uses this foolishness of preaching. And if you think about it, it kind of is foolishness. The guy gets up and he kind of just talks on about some things. And like to the world, you know, I, I love sometimes we'll have people that, that maybe they're not really alive spiritually. They're not in their faith. And they'll say, hey, I love that talk you gave. <laughs> right? That was very motivational. And I love that because they're, they're giving their language to it, you know, because I think church should be a place where you can come explore God. Like we've made church all about the Christians and it should be a place for people who are seeking for their, like, I don't know if God's real or not. I don't know what to think about this faith stuff. And so I'm going to go hang out there and it should be a safe place for people who are, who are atheist or agnostic or whatever the case may be to hang out and figure out, is there something to this? But to them, it will be hard because they're going to look and think this is a cult. <laughs> they're all singing the same song and they're like, you know, because they, they can't, they can't discern it yet. 
And so he's saying that it looks foolish to them because they're not a spiritual, they're unspiritual. That's not, that's not a criticism. That's just a statement of fact because their spirit's not alive yet. And then he says the second person is the spiritual person, 1 Corinthians 2.15. The spiritual person, that word in the Greek, really, literally means their spirit is alive. In other words, is what happens at salvation. By faith, there's a resurrection in our spirit. We're born again. We're made alive. The Bible says, and, and so that's what the spiritual person is, is someone who's been made alive, right? And, and it says that they judge all things. In, in other words, they, they have a, a resource, a capacity, an understanding that he calls the mind of Christ that allows them to see things in a different way. They see clearly. They make judgments. They, they can discern some things. They can see some things. Some things make sense to them that didn't make sense to them before because their spirits have been made alive. Um, this is the power, when we're talking about freeing me, um, this is the power that frees me. This is the power that changes me. Um, see, that's why most like New Year's resolutions, they don't work. You know why? Because it's your flesh trying to change your flesh. So go arm wrestle with yourself and let us know how that works out for you. Like I won. Yes, but you lost. Well, I lost. Yes, but you won. Hopefully you didn't get in a fight with yourself. I don't, you know, but anyways, it, because that's, that's why it, the best way to change your life is not to try to change yourself through your own fortitude. The best way to change your life is to change yourself spiritually. Because it's when the spirit man, when, when my spirit comes alive, that's the power of God in me that, that now has a power to start changing me. And so I don't change myself by trying to change myself. That's kind of like religion. You know, God is good. You're terrible. You should try harder. Well, how's that working for you? That's like the ministry of stop it. Pastor, I did it again. Stop it. That doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Right? Because here, can I help you with this? When, when spiritual transformation is about yielding to God's spirit that's been made alive in you. When I try to, by the flesh, overpower the flesh, I'm actually strengthening the muscle that keeps me in bondage. Right? And the way I get out of bondage is not to try to get myself out of bondage, but it's to live a new way. And now I, I surrender to God's power and I let the kingdom of God, his rule and authority and power begin working through my life. And that's what empowers me to start changing and transforming to look like God. This is why religion doesn't work. This is why the law doesn't work. You know, the law, the Ten Commandments, they're good. It's God's standard. God hasn't changed his standard, but he's empowered us a different, he's empowered us by his spirit to walk in it because we couldn't walk in it without his presence. Yeah. And the Bible, that's why Paul says the strength of sin is the law. The message of stop it and you need to try harder just empowers sin because it strengthens the part of you that's already bound you. Right? And so he's saying, hey, you got to become a spiritual person and begin to think and live a different way. And you would think that there were only two types of people, unspiritual and spiritual, but this is what gets us to the church of Corinth. There's this third person that he talks about. It's chapter three, but it's still the same context. But he says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as carnal or as flesh or as worldly, as infants. I fed you with milk and not solid food. You weren't ready for it. Even now you're not ready. You're still of the flesh. You're still carnal. So here's what he's saying. There's spiritual people. There, there, there are unspiritual people. And then there are carnal Christians, Christian concarne. And he's writing to a church that's full of them. They've got all types of worldly issues in the church. They have sexual issues. They have money issues. I mean, they have tons of issues in the Corinthian church. And he said, guys, here's the problem. Here's the problem. You've been made alive spiritually, but you're still living carnally. Like there's, there's, there's been faith in Christ, but you haven't let the faith you have in Christ actually change the way you live yet. And you're still holding on to your desires, your thought processes, the way you want to live. And now you look like Christian Concarne. And so essentially, he says there are three types of people. And then he says, here's the problem. You have a flesh problem. This is the second thing. You have a flesh problem. 
You have a carnal problem. You have carnality. In other words, your spirit's been made alive, but your spirit's been made alive in a body and a soul that are carnal in nature. See, we're, we're three parts, and you have to understand that salvation happens in three parts. My spirit is saved. My soul is being saved. My body will be saved. Right? Yes. Past tense, present tense, future tense. Yes. I'm three parts. Spirit has been saved when I accepted Christ. The Bible says I was made in a perfect position, seated with him in heavenly places. See, legalism says that I've been saved, but now to climb up the corporate ladder of salvation, I've got to perform a certain way. Well, that's because you don't understand your three parts. My spirit can't be more or less saved once I have faith in Christ and really trust him for salvation. But my soul is being saved. I'm jacked up. Don't laugh. You're jacked up too. <laughs> there are two types of people. Those that can admit they're jacked up and those that can't. <laughs> so, right. And so now my soul is being saved. And my soul, what's my soul? It's my mind, my will, my emotions. It's my thought processes. It's my desires. And it's my, my emotions. My feelings about things. And, and then it's in a body. And that body has its own set of issues. Its own set of appetites. And so this is the problem. If I, if I live legalistically, then I think, well, because I'm saved, then everything's got to be perfect. So I'm not allowed to have any issues, so I just cover up my issues. Or you can become like the Corinthian church and not cover up your issues, but not desire for God to change your issues, and you can live as Christian concarne. And so he says you have a flesh problem, and I'm going to jump to Galatians chapter 5 now, because Corinthians, the Corinthians and the Galatians had the same problem. It was flesh, but it, it manifested or worked its way out in two different ways. Let me explain. The Corinthian church, they said, we've received Christ but we're not going to change. We're just going to live how we want to live. The Galatian church said, we've received Christ, and now we're going to please God by the works of our flesh. So the Corinthian church said, we've received Christ, but we're not going to change our flesh. And the Galatian church said, we've received Christ, and now we're going to earn our salvation through our flesh. They're both perversions of grace. They're both perversions. Like to say... I've been born again, and God is good, and I'm under grace, so I can continue living a very carnal life is a perversion of grace. The same way saying that Christ's blood needs my effort for my salvation. So there's, there's an immediate work of grace in my spirit at salvation, but now there begins a progressive work of grace in my soul, where God calls me into righteousness and empowers me to change as I partner with the Holy Spirit in a lifestyle of surrender. Yes. Do, do you see? And so Paul is talking to Galatians. Here's what he says, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, this is where we have to be honest. Is anyone in this room doing something you don't want to do? You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. Everybody, it was all of a sudden one of those. My, my only job is to create awkward moments at church. That's really all I do is just create awkward moments at church. But, but isn't it true? Even Paul the Apostle said the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I, I do. Man, what a terrible person I am. How many have ever felt that way? Of course, we all have. And if you're sitting there like, oh, I've never felt that way, bless God, then you're a liar and you should be tased. <laughs> so all, let me help you with something. Every one of God's children has issues. And if you're sitting here and you think, I don't have any issues, that's your first issue. <laughs> because when you have pride, you have two problems. You're just as screwed up as everybody else, but you're not willing to face it. So... Paul is saying, we've got these two that, that work against each other, our carnal and our spirit. And the question is, which, which, one, which one wins? Let me answer the question. The one you rely on the most. The one you rely on. That's, that's the one that's, 
that's going to win. And then Paul goes on in Galatians 5. Most people know in Galatians 5, it has what we call the fruit of the spirit, but it also has what we call the, the fruit of the flesh. So it has the spirit and carnal kind of exemplified in a list of different things. And, and most people, I think, when they read the Bible, they think, oh, the fruits of the flesh, that's the unbelievers. And the fruit of the spirit, oh, that's the believers. But he's writing the letter to church people. He's not writing the letter to unbelievers. I mean, it wouldn't make sense for him to send a letter to unbelievers they didn't believe. Why would they even read the letter? He's sending the letter to believers. So he's talking about <laughs> Christian concarne, and, and, he, and he's showing you what a carnal Christian looks like, and we call it the fruit of the flesh. And so I'm going to read it, but I'm going to read it from the Message Bible because it makes it real. Then use churchy words. Galatians 5.19, this is the, the fruit of a carnal Christian. So this is a Christian who's living carnally. It says, it's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Well, remember he's talking to Christians. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. Well, I could do a series right there. And in our, in our world, in our culture... Right? Because we live in a culture where even the church culture doesn't know what sexual immorality is or isn't. I mean, the church is confused about this, and we wonder why the world's confused about it. And I know some of you are like, well, I'm not confused. Well, I'm not confused either, but I'm talking about nationally. We, as, a church, as, as the body of Christ nationally, we've got some real issues. Right? Because, you know, I, and I've said this before, but, you know, <laughs> We've got to the place where we're like, well, what is sexual immorality? Because I don't know anymore. Well, let me, let me, let's do it the other way. What is sexual morality? Well, sexual morality, according to God and according to Jesus, who I assume to be authorities on the subject, they said sexual morality, here's the box of sexual morality. The only thing inside the box of sexual morality is a husband and a wife who are in covenant relationship. We call that marriage. It's a man and a woman who are married, and, and they have sex. That's sexual morality. Everything else is outside of that box. Now, if that offends you, let me help you with something. Before you get home and, and send me an anonymous letter, <laughs> let me help you with something. I didn't write the Bible. I, I'm just telling you what it says. And... So before you scathe me anonymously, which is always interesting to me, <laughs> let me help you with something. I didn't make up the Bible. There's parts of this Bible that offend me too. But I have to decide, am I going to trust God as the authority of life or my feelings and my desires and my carnality? Who's going to be the authority? Because I don't think I can be the authority. I don't think you want me to be the authority. I don't think I want me to be the authority. I think I want God to be the authority. So it's okay if the Bible offends me. That's its job. One, pre <laughs> One preacher said it this way. You better stay away from that Bible. It will scare the hell right out of you. So, so Paul says, Paul says that, that we have a fleshly problem, and then Paul says we have a spiritual solution. We have a flesh problem, but here's, so there are three kinds of people, and then we, there's, a, there's a flesh problem, but then he gets to this, and he says, but there's a spiritual, there's a spiritual solution. And he's talking to the Galatians about the spiritual. And we read Galatians 5, um, 17, uh, 517, I'm sorry, no, Galatians 516 um, says this. Uh, so let me back up. 517 says that the flesh and the spirit, they're having this conflict, right? And all of us have kind of felt that, that war. But if we backed up one verse to Galatians 516, we would read this, that we have a spiritual solution. It says, Paul says, but I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, so in context, he's talking to the Corinthians and, and he's really talking about the way that they think. There's three different mindsets. There's a spiritual mind, 
There's an unspiritual mind and there's a carnal mind. And then he says the problem that, that he sees in the church is the carnal mind. It's the flesh problem. But he says then you have a spiritual solution. You have the mind of Christ. That's his spiritual solution, that you have access to something. And so he's telling the same thing to the Galatians. He's like, look, you can live a different way than you're living. You can live a carnal way, but you could live a, live a spiritual way. You could walk in the spirit or you can walk in the flesh. As a Christian, you, you get to pick the way that you walk because you have access to something that you didn't have access before. Before you were a believer, you couldn't walk in the spirit, but now you can walk in the Spirit. And walking in the Spirit is not about reciting church jargon. Walking in the Spirit is about accessing something you didn't have access to before. He says it's the mind of Christ. That I I can actually think from a different platform. I can think from a different source. And so we actually call this repentance. Now, a lot of people want to say repentance. It scares people in church because we've attached a very a negative connotation to repentance because repentance is, oh God, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. Let me help you. That's not repentance. That's an apology. And that's good. You know, confess. We should confess our sin to God. But that's more of an apology than, than repentance. Um, the word repentance actually comes from a uh, Greek. It's a Greek theater is, is where the oranges of the word come from. And the way it was used is like, I'm going to stage left, but now I'm going to repent and go to stage right. And so the church has, has not completely, all the time, and I, that sounds a little dogmatic, I'm not trying to be dogmatic, but there's a depth to this understanding that's not just changing directions. Because people say, well, repentance is you just change your behavior. Well, we're kind of back to the try harder thing. Right? The try harder thing doesn't really work for us. And so it has to be something deeper than, well, I was going this way and I decided to go this way. And so when we look at the word, it's, it's, um, in the Greek, it's a word metanoia. And it really, it, it kind of has a timestamp. It, it really means to change your mind afterwards. After what? Well, here's how repentance work, works. God gives us truth or revelation and then we partner with it. And we let it change us. We let it change the way that I think. Let it change the way that I process what's going on around me. And so repentance isn't me changing my behavior. Repentance is my surrender to God's truth and revelation in a way that, that empowers his spirit and presence in me to begin to transform me. So repentance isn't, isn't a negative thing. It's actually a gift. Repentance is actually a gift of how I learned to win in life and to live the life that God's uh, created me to live. So repentance is, is really a, a shift in the mind. In fact, Romans 8 verse 5, Paul is talking about it to the Roman church. And he says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds. See this? Their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. Do you see that? Now, verse 6 is key to me because it says, the mind that is governed, you say it this way, controlled or administrated. The mind that is governed by the flesh is death. Carnal thinking kills, right? But the mind that is governed by the spirit is life and peace. And then he goes on to say, so the mind that's controlled by the flesh is hostile to God because it can't submit to God. It, it, there's no way for it to. Um, and so those who are of the realm of the flesh, they're carnal. They can't please God. In other words, their thinking is actually opposed to God's thinking. They don't think about themselves the way God thinks about them. They don't think about life the way God thinks about it. They don't think about others the way God thinks about uh, They don't think about God the way God knows that he is. And so, so now I can't really please God because my mind is not set the right way. Like it or not, this world teaches you a way of thinking. Like it or not, the enemy's greatest thing is to teach you to process the things in your life a way that's against God. Right? Uh, one of the things, one of the freedom exercises we do when we're trying to help people a lot of times is they'll have an event in their life that's very traumatic and they will have believed that God didn't care about that event. And we'll stop and we'll say, hey, let's ask God where he was during that moment in your life. And all of a sudden, we don't say anything to him. We just say, God, will you please 
show us where you were in that moment of their life. And you'll watch it every time. People will melt. And then I'll say, what, what did God? And they'll say, God showed me that he was here or he was there or he was watching over me or he, was, or he was bringing this person by at just the right time. God showed me how he was working. I believed all of my life God didn't care about that event and I've just seen how God cared about that event. Because the enemy's goal is to help you think a way that's contrary to God and he uses everything in your life that happens. And so what we realize is that repentance is what enables me to shift my thinking by God's spirit in me. So I can't live a renewed life until I have a renewed mind. I, I can't live a spiritual life if I have a, a very carnal mind. And a carnal mind always produces a carnal life, and a carnal life always ends in... Can I help you, can I help you with finding carnal thinking in your life? Uh, when you keep ending up with the fruit of death, what does that look like? The fruit of the flesh? So if you get Galatians 5 and read the fruit of the flesh and you find any of that in, my, in your life, you know what Paul would tell you that I'm telling you? You got a, you got a processing problem. It, it, it's not that all men are bad. It's just the ones you pick have been. It's the selection process is the problem. You're trying to get something out of somebody they can't give you. Right? It's not that you are cursed with poverty and you can never win. It's that the way you think about finances isn't the way God thinks about finances. Uh, here, this is an easy, finance is always an easy one. Okay, is it true that if I had $100 and I gave $10 away, I'd have $90? Is there anything a lie about that? Is that completely true? Okay, so God says, I want you to give me the first 10% of everything that comes into your hands. We call that a tithe. And what we, in a carnal mind, says, well, if I give God 10%, I'm only going to have 90%. If I give God 10%, I'm going to have less. Is that true? Yeah, it is, except that the kingdom of God doesn't work the way the world works, and a spiritual mind understands what a carnal mind can't, and that is when I give God 10%, he increases the 90 to be more than 100. Now, I can't discern that with a carnal mind. That has to be revelation of the Spirit. God has to speak to me and show me that I can trust him even in the area of finances and that he can do more in my life with 90% than I can do with 100%. The carnal way of thinking is the natural way of thinking, but God offers us a reality that's greater. And you could put that in any area of your life. It's not a sermon about money. It's just true about money. It's easy to understand. But any area of your life, I can tell you that if you keep getting the fruit of death, it's because there's repentance that's needed. And repentance doesn't mean you're a bad person. Repentance means you need to think a different way. And God has given you his spirit so you can know the mind of Christ because a carnal Christian are just those that, that have God's spirit in them, but they're still living based in their carnal realities and mindsets and desires. And part, can I tell you the reason we have um, so many carnal, um, carnal Christians? Can, can I, I, here's my thought. Because we have so many carnal leaders. And for some of you, you've never been to a pastor's conference, so let me help you. Just trust me. We have a lot of carnal leaders. And can I, let me give you the obvious example. Here's what we tell people. Um, we've even carnalized the gospel. There's a couple ways we've done that. I mean, if you're talking about finances, we've told people you give to get. That's not, that's, that's carnal. That's just appealing to people selfish. You give because Jesus is Lord. Yeah, he'll multiply, but you don't give for all. You give because he's Lord. You don't give to get. But, but let me help you another one. We, the gospel we've carnalized. Let me, let, let's take a test. I bet we can all pass. If I said, how many of you in this room today would like to burn in hell? Anybody? Any takers on that? Anybody want to burn in hell? No? Okay. So what if I said, there are only two options. If you don't want to burn in hell, you need to go to heaven how many would pick heaven over hell? Anybody pick heaven over? Yeah, half of you at least. Okay, that's good. And so, so the rest of you, you know, God be with you. Anyways, 
(laughs) And then what if I said, now the difference between going to heaven and going to hell is saying a sinner's prayer. How many would sign up for a sinner's prayer? Yeah, we we didn't get anybody saved. No, we appealed to their carnal nature to recite something so they feel better about them and we feel better about us. Because that's not even the, it's not even the gospel and it's not even the target of the gospel. The, can I help you with something that's kind of a deep subject? But the target of the gospel is not you pray a prayer so you can die and go to heaven. That's not even what Jesus preached. It's not what Paul preached. It's not what the New Testament's about. The New Testament is, says this, getting, to, getting me to heaven, that's God's responsibility. Yes. Bringing heaven to earth is the church's responsibility. Yes. Yes. Jesus said, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, please help us get to heaven. <laughs> no, it's not, that's not what he, he said. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth, the first thing we're supposed to pray for, according to Jesus' model prayer, is we want heaven to come to earth. And that's what Jesus said. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, not the gospel of the sinner's prayer. Did you know there's no sinner's prayer in the Bible? And I'm not against, obviously, we need to pray, and we'd say talking to God is prayer, and that's where it came from. It was very well intentioned. I'm not trying to blow anybody out of the water. I'm trying to make a point that what saves us is not reciting a sinner's prayer. What saves us is repentance. It's believing something I didn't believe before. It's seeing something I didn't see before. See, that's what Jesus said. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He wasn't saying you're all doing bad stuff and you need to stop it. What he was saying is the kingdom of God was supposed to come through Adam through God's son, Adam, and Adam fell. He disobeyed. And now Jesus is saying, now, the, now here's another son, theologically the second Adam, and he's standing on earth in right relationship with the Father under the right mission and commission given by the Father, which is heaven come to earth. And Jesus is saying, hey, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. In other words, there is a greater reality that you can access that you couldn't access previously but in order, to, in order to enter into it and access it and receive from it, you have to change the way you think. Otherwise, you won't see what's right in front of you. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born of spirit and water, you can't even see the kingdom of God. See, we need God's kingdom. You want God's authority and dominion over your marriage, over your house, over your health, over your kids, over your finances. You want God to be ruler over them, not the world. Is that right? And so we need to access God's kingdom because the kingdom has all the resources to all this earth's problems. But if we don't understand that the way we access the kingdom is through repentance, because a carnal mind can't perceive the things of God, right? It can't access the things of God. It doesn't even know what's available to it. And that's what Paul's telling the Corinthians. You guys are missing out because you're not letting God change your mind. See, I can't change my heart. God won't change my mind. But if I'll change my mind, God can change my heart. And that is what we call repentance. And so repentance is, is where I start identifying thoughts and thought processes that are opposed to the truth and reality of God. They're, they're opposed to the kingdom of God. And so repentance is now spiritual and it's transformational. In other words, it's spiritual in that I have access, Paul says, to the mind of Christ. In fact, if you back up, it says, who's known the mind of a person except the spirit of person? This is still 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just a few verses up. Who's known the mind of, of a person except the spirit of person? Who knows the mind of God except the spirit of God? You have the spirit of God. What's he saying? You have access to the mind of God. Yeah. You can actually think the same way about you that God thinks about you. And I'll tell you this, you'll never be who God created you to be or do what God created you to do until you think about yourself the way God thinks about you. And so repentance gives me the access and opens the door for me to live a different way. Now, I, I, it's, it's a discipline because I have to decide, am I going to live from my carnal way of thinking or am I going to try to access God's way of thinking? I have access to it, but am I going to access it? And so when I see the fruit of the flesh, when I see patterns of death in my life, I have to step back and say, I keep pushing this button and getting that. 
So that's not working. So God, what's going on with me that I keep choosing that? For somebody, I'm saving you your next relational crash. What's going on with me that, that I keep choosing that? The problem's not that. The problem is what's going on with me. What am I thinking about me? What am I thinking about you? What am I thinking about people? See, repentance is an ongoing process. It's, it's a way of life. Um, let me help you. Israel, if you remember Israel... The nation of Israel, they were delivered from Egypt in, really in one day. There were 10 plagues, but in one day, they went from being slaves to being free, like that. Right? It was the plague of the firstborn and right Passover, and then Pharaoh's like, get out. And not only did he want them out, he paid them to leave. Right? But here's the thing. They were delivered from slavery in one day, but the whole trek through the wilderness... God couldn't deliver them from thinking like slaves. And so finally, they didn't go into the promised land. There were two spies that thought right. And they said, this land is for us. And God's given us this land. And we see these people are terrified of us. And the other spies said, we're terrified of them. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. And so here's what God said. Here's what God did. He had to let the generation, he, he led them in the wilderness for 40 years in a circle to let the generation that had been raised as slaves die so the generation that had been raised as free people could inherit the promise because slaves can't inherit the promises of God. You cannot walk in the promises of God thinking like a slave. And so this is why our mind has to be renewed, why, why we have to be, as Paul said, renewed in the spirit of our mind, not be conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. This is why we have to, it's not about, this is what we've done in church. We've changed the content of people's mind, but not the process of people's mind. Yes. Repentance is not memorizing a scripture. Repentance is letting scripture shape the way you think. Yes. Some people have stopped short of breakthrough because they're satisfied with good theology. And this is, to me, what brings us to baptism. I know it doesn't sound like a baptism. It's like baptism weekend. What's any of this got to do with baptism? Well, here's what it has to do. Do you remember what they called John the Baptist's baptism? It was a baptism of repentance. It wasn't a baptism of forgiveness. It was a baptism of repentance. Um, all that's needed for forgiveness is, well, if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. That's forgiveness. But Jesus said, be baptized. Why? Because baptism is a baptism of repentance. Baptism initiates and starts the ongoing work of repentance. Maybe I should say the ongoing gift of repentance in our life. See, Romans 6, verse 4 says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of God the Father, even so we should, watch this, walk in newness of life. Don't walk in the flesh, walk in the spirit. Walk in newness of life. How do I walk in newness of life? Well, he ties it to baptism. Let's go another one, Colossians 2, 11. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not with a physical procedure. That's Old Testament under the law, the physical procedure of circumcision. He said, so when you came to Christ, you weren't circumcised. Uh, you were circumcised, but not with a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature, your carnal nature, for, in other words, here's how, you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. Here's what he's saying. It's, it's not just something we do. It's not just getting wet. It, it looks very physical in nature. I physically get in a tank and go underwater and come up. But what he's saying is it looks physical, but it has a spiritual ramification, has spiritual reality to it, has spiritual victory and spiritual breakthrough in that when I go into that water, God cuts away the carnal nature off of me so I can live spiritually sensitive. It's a baptism of repentance. He, he, he does a surgery so I can think from the mind of Christ. I think some of you, the breakthrough that you need in your life is on the other side of the baptism tank. Hallelujah. 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 
well, it's just, it's getting in a tub and I've been in a tub. <laughs> listen, all through the Bible, listen, all through the Bible, listen, God asked us to do physical things that are attached to spiritual victory. Yes. Like, think about this. There's this man named Naaman. He has leprosy. That's bad. He comes to the prophet. He said, I got leprosy. He's like, go dip in the Jordan seven times. It's like, did you hear what I said? I have leprosy. Yep, go get in the river. I know we all know how the story turns out. We're kind of laughing. But if you came up and said, brother, you know, pastor, I just, man, I just need prayer. Uh, you know, I'm really struggling. And, and the doctors say that I've just been diagnosed with cancer. And I said, no problem. Drive over to the Sabine River and jump in. <laughs> See, I would be on the six o'clock news because that'd be interpreted. I was like telling you to commit suicide or something like that. <laughs> so I'm just saying we know the story, but this really happened to a guy. I've got an incurable disease. Well, just go jump in the river. <laughs> dunk, dunk yourself seven times. And what happened? He was healed. It was just a physical act, but it had spiritual victory attached to it. Yeah. Right? Um, another one. They're going to war. The Israelites are going to war the Amalekites. And God tells Moses, here's your strategy. Go up on that hill and just hold your hands in the air. <laughs> like you just don't care. And just, you know, no, he's like, hold your hands in the air. <laughs> and as long as he held his hands in the air, they won. And when his hands got tired and fell, they started losing. So Aaron and her catch on and they hold his hands up so they can win. What does holding your hands up have to do with how well your soldiers fight? Nothing except God said, do it. And when God says, do something that doesn't make sense in the carnal way of thinking, it doesn't make sense in the natural way of thinking. If God says, do something physically, it always has spiritual victory attached to the other side. <laughs> One more. All right. Joash comes to Elijah, who's about to pass away, and says, Am I going to defeat the Syrians? And Elijah looks to him and says, Take an arrow and shoot it out the east window. <laughs> I didn't come for archery class. I'm a king. I want to know if I'm going to win. Shoot an arrow. Shoot an arrow. Okay, great. Shot an arrow. All right. Now, are you going to win? I don't know. Take the rest of your arrows and beat on the ground. Sometimes I'd love to pastor this way. Everybody would leave the church. They'd be like, that guy right there. It's a fruitcake, right? <laughs> and so the king takes the arrows and hits the ground three times. And here's what he said. I don't even know how you're supposed to know this, but here's what he said. If you'd hit the ground six times or more, you'd have completely devastated the enemy, but now you're just going to have a partial victory because you only hit the ground three times. Now, how was I supposed to know that? But here's what God said. It's a physical act, but it has a spiritual victory attached to it. When Paul's telling us about baptism, he said, it looks like just a physical act. You get in a tub and you go under and you come up. But it has a spiritual victory in it, has spiritual breakthrough in it because God severs some flesh from you so that you can live with the mind of Christ and you can learn to think God's thoughts about you and God's thoughts about your life and God's thoughts about the people around you and even God, what God knows about himself. It's a physical activity. It's a spiritual victory. Yes. It's not just... I know we do baptism and we demonstrate our faith, and that's part. I know we do baptism and people say it's like the wedding ring of our relationship with God because it lets everybody see my proclamation of faith, and that's a part. But it's so much deeper than that. Yes. It's so much deeper. And let me just, there's a couple of things I want to say, because when we do baptism weekend, some people are like, well, you know, do you have to be baptized to go to heaven? Um, well, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and he, Jesus said he'd go to paradise. And, and we start asking questions that I don't think really are relevant. And I just wonder sometimes, like, where do those come from? Like, could I help you? Jesus said, be baptized. Like if people said, hey, pastor, why were you baptized? Because Jesus said. Yes. Is that not sufficient? Yes. And people say, well, do I need to be dunked? Well, that's what Jesus was. Yes. Do I need to go all the way under? That's the way Jesus was baptized. In fact, that's what the word means. 
In fact, throughout all church history, it's a relatively new idea in church history to, to sprinkle. And I'm not against that experience. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm just saying that's why we don't, because that's what Jesus said. Like, what if we simplified it? Jesus said, be baptized. What does the word baptism mean? Immersed. Yes. Right? Why? Because it's a death, burial, and resurrection. Yes. Like, when we bury somebody, we don't bury part of them. We don't sprinkle dirt on them. We bury them. I'm really not trying to be funny. That kind of was funny, but I wasn't trying to be funny. Like I was just, just trying to explain, right? And, you know, I don't want to be insensitive, but I'm just saying that's what it is, right? And so why do we baptize? Jesus said be baptized. But why is it so important that Jesus be baptized? Because he wants to control our lives? No, 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 no. Because he wants to free us. Yeah. He wants to free us. Yes. And he's saying, hey, you can go in that water with a carnal way of thinking. What, we, we've done several uh, baptism videos. Um, uh, my, my wife, it was her idea. She's like, I want to capture these videos on baptism. So we had several people come in. And there's like, out of the ones we did, like half of them all say, I heard God more clearly. And it just started hitting me. It's like, I heard God more clearly. I'm like, yeah, because you cut away the carne. <laughs> got the carne out of the chili. You know what I'm saying? I mean, right? <laughs> and so it's a physical activity. And so here's what I want to say, just real quick. Do you need to be baptized today? Do you need to be baptized? Now, let me help you with that. How do I know if I need to be baptized? Is there something in here that pulls you towards baptism? Like you may not come in even knowing it's baptism weekend and all of a sudden you're kind of sitting there like, do I need to be baptized? Maybe I do need to be baptized. I kind of feel like maybe I need to be baptized. <laughs> let, me, let me help you with this. A couple of things. Number one is people in a natural state don't tend to sign up for baptism. So like you in and of yourself are not just going to come up with baptism. Let me help you another way. Satan has never convinced anyone to be baptized. So now that I've eliminated those two sources, there's one source left. And if there's something in you that says, maybe I need to be baptized, it's probably the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes. And he's probably saying, Psst, let's deal with some things. Yes. Because baptism starts the lifestyle of repentance that frees me to be the person that God created me to do. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, you know, I was sprinkled as a child. Let me help you with that. First of all, we honor and revere and respect your parents' decision to have you confirmed or, or sprinkled as a baby or a child, however that worked out. But can I tell you something? As an adult, you need to make your decision. You, you were sprinkled because they made their decision. We dedicate babies too. We, we don't sprinkle them, but we dedicate them. And that's the parents' decision. And your parents made a decision. I think the way you honor that decision is now that you're old enough, you make your proclamation of faith. That was their proclamation of faith. You make your proclamation of faith. That was because of their relationship with God. Now you have your relationship with God. But let God do a surgery that makes you alive and changes you forever so that you can live the life. It frees you to live the life God created. Is that good news? Come on, come on. Yeah, give it, that's good news. <laughs>